Hello, and welcome to part two of the Josias podcast episode on socialism. Uh, this time, we, as well as Alan and Potter Edmund, we have uh, Chris with us as well. He's been on the show before and has been helping us with the recordings, and he'll be co-hosting with me today. Uh, for the music, we heard a lovely piece from my favorite 20th century composer, Prokofiev. Uh, Potter, why don't you say a little bit about this? It's from uh, Romeo and Juliet. Or not Romeo and Juliet, it's from Cinderella. Cinderella, Cinderella, yeah. That's so, right, it's the Cinderella Waltz. Yeah, so Cinderella is a, is a ballet by Prokofiev. And um, I chose it both because it's stylistically a bit similar to the music we heard for part one um, from Shostakovich. And, and also because uh, Eastern European socialists have this kind of uh, fascination with Cinderella. You have in during 20th century really existing socialism in Eastern Europe, you have this proliferation of Cinderella uh, adaptations, and they're including a very beautiful uh, Czech film on Cinderella, which is uh, my favorite fairy tale film. Um, and it, it's got this kind of uh, otherworldly purity to it. I, I love it because uh, the two most for me, at least, uh, when I think of you know Soviet artists and Soviet composers, Shostakovich is probably the one I think of first because he actually had to change his style so much and and sort of uh, suffered slash was a toady for the uh, Soviet regime, depending on who you ask. But Prokofiev is another one, and his music has such irony and sarcasm in it, and it it, it sounds like it's going to go right, and then he usually swerves one way or another. So it, it seems very, very fitting. <clears throat> um, so to start, why don't we start by, so we sort of ended after we had recapped the, uh, the we'd gotten to the three definitions. Why don't we just briefly lay those out, Alan, and then we'll go into the question of private property and the family, and then hopefully also the question of rerum novarum. Uh, so why would you... Uh, uh, recapitulate very quickly the three definitions of socialism that we uh, landed on last week. Um, now, let me uh, scratch my head here. Um, the, yeah, the first one is the state owns the means of production. The second one was the right of private property. The state doesn't necessarily own the means of production, but the right of ownership is a, a positive right that's granted by the state and can be revoked by the state at any time. So you hold property as uh, on the sufferance of the state, as it were. Um, and the third one uh, was the the sort of vague um, one that the Marcus of Ripon would have held as well, sort <laughs> of, uh, being against the exploitation of workers and stuff. Well, I, I, that's a little bit unfairly vague. I mean, the the idea that uh, the enterprises of any significant size should be owned the means of production should be owned by the workers ideally right but without asserting any prior ownership rights of the state so as to enforce that uh so from this point uh so since we did discuss this last time from this point uh i i take it that the condemnation of the second one in particular is found in rerum novarum uh, so, uh, there's a socialist critique of Rerum Novarum that says basically it gets Aristotle wrong. It incorporates all this Lockeanism that comes from a paper 
by the uh, uh, I think uh, Father Ernst Ernest uh, Fortin uh, yeah. Potter as our as our socialist for the episode. Why don't you go ahead and. Okay, so Father Ernest Fortin um, was an Assumptionist priest, and he was he studied at the University of Laval in Quebec, but later on he studied in Paris and became friends with Alan Bloom, the Straussian, and sort of imbibed Straussian doctrine. Um, and his critique of Rerum Novarum is very Straussian. That is, he sees, well, I mean, he, he, he is, he's much more, Fortin himself is much more generous than a lot of people who use this paper against Rerum Novarum. But he, he sees Rerum Novarum as kind of uh, juxtaposing elements from two different traditions, from the pre-modern Aristotelian tradition and from the Enlightenment tradition. And uh, what he sees as being taken from the Enlightenment tradition is uh, a kind of Lockean understanding of the right of private property, where right is given too much, pro too much prominence as opposed to duty. We have this kind of sacred and inviolable right um, that's antecedent to society rather than being granted by society. Um, and he sees this as being in tension with um, the way, for example, St. Thomas understood the right of private property, which he argues is as a kind of, uh, as something that belongs to the use gentium, a kind of secondary precept of natural law that is a conclusion that's drawn from the primary precepts of natural law and is subordinate to the precept of the universal destination of goods. So I, I had a question there, which is, let's say it is right that Thomas, and I think it is, right? Thomas thinks that private property is a secondary precept of natural law and it belongs to the use gentium. And so at times he will call it not part of the natural law, part of positive law, and other times he'll say that it is natural. And the reason for that is it's kind of, uh, it's, you know, for him, I think, not primary, but uh, secondary. Even so, uh, how, how far does Fortin's criticism actually get you? Because can't you say, even so, by the use gentium, it's given to the family, and uh, the state can't just uh, willy-nilly uh, violate it? Well, uh, I would say, as now taking the socialist part, um, that the the state has to ensure, first of all, that the primary precepts of the natural law are obeyed, including the universal destination of goods, which means that the external things of this world are given for the sustenance of human beings. And so the state can arrange the... the um, the way in which goods are produced in a society um, in such a way as to best ensure that that universal destination of goods is fulfilled. And if that means uh, nationalizing all the major industries, then um, nationalize all the major industries. And since in fact, 
the the cupidity of the capitalists is defrauding the workers of their just share of the goods of the earth, it's necessary to nationalize all the industries. So that the cupidity of the socialists can deprive the workers of the fruits of their labor instead. I think I think um uh the um the uh the fact that the private property is antecedent to the temporal power doesn't mean that it's antecedent to society. Uh, I, I don't think uh, one can elide those two things in quite that way. And also, I'm not sure it can be quite so easily chopped up between the primary and the secondary precepts. I think some some form of institution of property uh, more specific than the human race, so not just the universal destination of goods, would necessarily exist in all orders of providence in which human nature was realized. Um, the fact, so, so in the fact, the way in which it's realized in this order of providence, such that it inheres in individuals and families in a way that is antecedent to the state, is not uh, not inextricable from the natural law. That is, there are orders of providence in which um, human nature could be realized and in which property was realized in a different way. But I think that there would be property more specific than than just the entire human race uh, in every order of providence. And, the, and of course, the distinction between the temporal power and the church and the family as, as ways in which human society are organized results from certain specific features of this order of providence. And so in, in that sense, and, and in, in this order of providence, the temporal power is is posterior to the state, to the family, and in some ways to the church. Um, and so I think Leo's assertions about, about property being antecedent to the state are not uh, shouldn't be confused with claims about it being antecedent to society. So I think when he says it's sacred, it just means that it's inviolable from the perspective of the temporal power because, because the family's rights are prior and more fundamental because the family would exist in all possible orders of providence, whereas the temporal power wouldn't because the temporal power's distinction from the church and the family is a result of specific features of this order of providence uh, as altered by sin. So that's really interesting. I, I wonder if you've made a distinction there, Alan, between uh, the state and society. And nowadays uh, we use these terms kind of equivocally. So I, I wonder if, if we could sort of um, you know, clearly delineate the distinction that you're making between those, those two words. Um. Well, um, boom, 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 boom. Um, society would just could mean any uh, community to which man belonged, especially the necessary ones and the perfect ones. Um, whereas the state is a specific, necessary, and perfect society in this order of providence, but which is bifurcated from the church and the family as a result of the loss of the preternatural gifts and original innocence. But it wouldn't be. Hadn't had we had we, well, I, I would argue anyway, it wouldn't be if we hadn't lost those things, and therefore it's 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 later down the logical tree, uh, 
of, of the development of human human social forms than the family and the church. Well, it's, that's, it's prior in, I mean, it, it's, I agree that it's posterior independence, that is, the, the families are the material cause of political society, so in that way, political society is posterior to them. But it's prior to the family in the order of final causality, because it, uh, it's the society that is concerned with um, the complete good of, well, at least of temporal human life. Uh, um, but the temporal distinction, the distinction of the fact that it's of temporal is a result of, of factors which are posterior to the, to the family and the, um, and the church. So there wouldn't uh, need to be a state distinct from the church if, if man hadn't fallen. Sure, but then the church just would be the state. But it, it's, well, it's natural that there'd be a greater society than the society of the family. Um, I agree. Which is ordered to mere life, whereas a perfect society is ordered to... Um, is ordered Living to well. the life of virtue. Right. Wouldn't you say that the family is ordered to the state in that sense, since living is ordered to living well? or living the life of virtue, uh, and therefore in the order of final causality, which is the most important order of cause, uh, the state is prior. No, the church is prior. Um, because the um, the uh, because the most the, the essentially perfect society is the church, which should be uh, which the temporal power should be united to as body to soul, um, and uh, so the, the the fact that the state exists results from weird disruptions to human nature resulting from the fall. But but let's say let's say that we live in an integralist society in which the the temporal power is united to the church. Um, and subordinate to the spiritual power. Um, why couldn't you say, in this case, the um, the the temporal power, uh, insofar as it's the end for which, I mean, that insofar as the the good that it's uh, pursuing is a higher good than the one that's pursued by individual families, should be able to. Uh, Nationalize industries so that every family gets a fair share of, of external goods. Yeah, but because my, my issue with what, what Alan's saying is that, you know, uh, the orders, sure, things things could be different. And, and eventually, you know, Christ the King will be the head when in the celestial city of one city, right? Uh, but in this order that we live, it's still true that the family is ordered to the state because living is still ordered to living well, uh, in, even in the, just the temporal sense, uh, uh, on the natural level rather than the supernatural level. So yeah, can you, could, you could still say there's, there's a, even in a socialist state, there would still be a right to private property in the sense that you couldn't steal the portion, uh, someone else's portion of goods that was allotted to them. If you get five pounds of uh, flour or whatever, <laughs> uh, you get your ration from the state. I get my ration. I'm not allowed the, to steal your ration. <laughs> the state is, well, the temporal power is permitted to nationalize industries. Absolutely. It's not contrary to Catholic social teaching that it, that it, that it be, uh, or true political philosophy or whatever, that it, that it that it be that nationalized industries. It's just not allowed to nationalize them without compensation. 
it shouldn't nationalise them rashly just because it thinks it's a good thing to own all the means of production for its own sake rather than in this weird specific instance it needs to own them because otherwise some distortion to the civil order would occur. And it's not allowed to take away... And the difference with what you were saying there, Parch Edmund, I think, is that it's not allowed to take away from families their ownership of their own means of production if they should be so fortunate as to have acquired them. It, it could, in, in if, if, if the necessary requirements of justice were fulfilled, confiscate the ownership of means of production which exceed that which is necessary for the family to provide for itself from a family. Um, but it couldn't confiscate... Um, uh, if, if a family was a subsistence farmers... Uh, according to Leo's teaching, as I understand it, it couldn't confiscate it couldn't confiscate that in exchange for some kind of welfare payment uh, from the state. Well, okay, it's, well, it's kind mean, of an, go ahead, Father. I mean, go back to the model of Cuba that I brought up um, in part one. The way I understand the at least the uh, the intention of the the Cuban economic system was precisely that that. You can have um, the means of production as long as you're just providing for yourself. But the moment that those means of production become, give you power over other people and other people become your servants, then those people have to have a say. Then, they, then you have to have, uh, if, so if, if, I, if I have a bakery and it's just me and my wife working in the bakery, then um, Fidel Castro is going to let me keep it. But <laughs> if I then hire um, three, uh, three other people to work in my bakery because it's a big success, then I have to give them part ownership in the bakery. I can't just uh, employ them as my servants because then uh, what's going to happen is that since I have more power than them, I'm going to pay them an unjust wage and so on. I don't think that's excluded in principle. It just seems to me that that's obviously a massively heavy-handed violation of subsidiarity. I think I think what's excluded in principle is the idea that that that, that the state must seize control of all assets beyond uh, what's required for the subsistence of the family, and uh, and also the idea that. Um, uh, the, the, the state, even that the state could, must in principle compel the cooperatization of all property beyond uh, that which provides for the subsistence of the family. I mean, I think, think there could be particular circumstances in which that was the right thing to do, but I just don't think they would, as a contingent question... But but I don't contingent prudential judgment. But I don't think it's almost impossible to imagine those circumstances being realised where it so, wouldn't vastly more harm than good. So can I ask this? Do you think then that the uh, in principle the state can prohibit uh, wage labour? Because um, uh, I, I no, would say I don't. no. No, I don't. And that seems like what the state. That seems like my. That would be my issue with what Cuba is doing. Is is I would say that. You, I mean, obviously, sometimes you can put limits on wage labor, but prohibiting it, prohibiting it entirely seems uh, a bridge too far. I mean, I suppose I don't. I can't imagine what they would be, but I mean, I suppose you could have weird, particular circumstances in which you know, just like in World War Two, it might have made sense to 
seize control of armaments manufacturers and coal mines or whatever. There might be weird particular circumstances in which that happened to be a reasonable prudential decision. I can't really at all imagine what they would be. But the idea that well, it should I mean, be forbidden as such, uh, or that it could be forbidden as such because it's just the right thing to do, as if that was part of, um, as if you were implementing the natural law by doing that, that, that would certainly be false. Well, I mean, I guess the, the socialist response would be the, the, the current system um, has got such a firm grip on economic and political life. And uh, everything is de facto ordered to the, the private advantage of capitalists. And so in order to, um, to escape this death grip that the capitalists have on human society in our times, we have to take extreme measures. And since sort of the principle of their power is the system of wage labor, we're going to abolish wage labor. But I, I mean, I, I, I just don't think that that would, um, I don't think that that measure would actually accomplish that. I mean, I, I mean, I sympathize with some of what you're saying there. I mean, but why wouldn't you be able to achieve that by simply saying cooperatively owned enterprises pay no tax? I mean, of course, that would immediately lead to massive capital flight, and you'd have to work out. <laughs> well, it might lead to massive capital flight. There's a danger it would, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think not as much as nationalisation would lead to massive capital flight, but the, um, but um, and you'd have to take steps to try and work out how on earth you were going to deal with that. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher in Britain, she um, she passed legislation to to basically destroy various cooperative forms of ownership, which is particularly sinister. So she 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 privatised lots of huge, clunky, useless nationalised industries, which then immediately went to the wall and were asset strips by her pals. Um, but um, but the but I mean they were useless anyway, and they were a huge burden on the taxpayer. Um, so I mean, although she went about it in a particularly brutal way, I can see where she was coming from there. But she did things like we have these. I don't know if you have that in this in other countries, but they were these are called building societies, which are kind of cooperative banks for the sake of people being able to get mortgages, and they seem to be entirely admirable organisations. And she changed the law so that you could the members could vote to dissolve them and share the assets between themselves and turn them into essentially um, private organisations that weren't cooperative. And of course, because there was such huge windfalls to be had by doing that, uh, all the members uh, of the building societies um, gave in to temptation and dissolved all the building societies, which I'm sure is what she wanted. But that showed that she was hostile to... Um, uh, even to cooperative forms of ownership, and was trying to undermine them. And, and yes, that's. But I mean, I don't see why wage labour per se, abolishing wage labour, would achieve the kind of de the, the abolition of capitalism in the way that you're describing. It doesn't seem that that would be a particularly helpful mechanism for doing it. So let's yeah. let's return to the first principle there, right? Uh, I mean, we started kind of from that second definition uh, of socialism uh, put out there as, as private ownership is granted by the state and able to be revoked. And then we um, 
we were having a discussion about uh, the source of, of rights, in particular natural rights. Uh, are they antecedent to or, or flowing from society? And what is the relation between the society and the state? So um, where does this land us as far as the principle? Do um, Is there an ability of the state independently uh, to determine this? Or does, does the society sort of more broadly have uh, an ability to place the state in check? Well, I mean, I think the, the key question to determine the answer to that is whether or not at a certain point, I mean, obviously it would probably be a doomed enterprise, but whether at a certain point when the state official comes to take away your farm, whether or not you can shoot him. Do you see I mean? If, if you can, <laughs> then then some, to some degree, the right of ownership of the family is antecedent to the, to the, uh, as it were, alleged eminent domain being exercised by the state. Now, obviously, there's no point shooting them because they've got tanks and nuclear bombs and you're going to lose. Um, but a just uh, war doctrine would tell you you should give right, up. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But I mean, but if in principle, perhaps you could, you know, we're in a slightly more primitive form society where you do actually have a chance of um, holding them off with your rifles and your homemade ammunition. Um then, uh, then I think, and I think that you, that's probably you do have the right to do that if the other conditions are, are realised, if it's your subsistence farm or near enough, near enough, um, and that's because uh, the state uh, or the temporal power is not, um, it doesn't it doesn't have prior rights to the, the to the family's. Um, subsistence property to the means of, of its so, own production. I would go in a slightly different direction. I, I would say that in one sense, the state is absolutely, uh, or and by absolutely, I mean, really prior to the family. But the confusion that people have is thinking that the state, the structure of the state, it, it's prior, that when it comes to be the family passes away. And that's the confusion, particularly of socialists, is often that they th they think of the state as replacing the family because they don't really think of the family as a necessary society at all. So for me, the difference is that this family is a necessary society, but it is not necessarily uh, prior. Uh, so when the state comes to be, the family still exists and still has certain rights. Granted, the family exists for the sake of the state and for the sake of living virtuously, which it can't do on its own, so it has to give way to civil society. So in, in the same way, property, private property, is the economic sphere, as Aristotle teaches, is the uh, domain most of all of the family. It's the domain most of all of the household. Uh, but it obviously exists for the sake of the city at a certain point, and you have to give way to the city on certain things. But that doesn't mean the city destroys the workings of the household. It just means that the state has certain claims on the household. Um, but it seems, well, two things. I think one is that I think Leo XIII completely brackets all of these, uh, a large number of these questions because they involve 
uh, highly theological distinctions, which would have completely destroyed the rhetorical uh, purpose of his encyclical. Right? <laughs> um, right. If he started saying, well, had Adam been made this way rather than that way, and if man hadn't fallen this, and if man had fallen that, and if you had the basic <laughs> vision the other, then the people he was trying to convince by his, his encyclical would be like, whatever. Where was that book by Marx and Engels again? Um, because because they, they just completely have lost any interest. So that's why all these distinctions about the jus gentium and what we might mean by the jus gentium and whether it means kind of positive universal international law or just the immediate transcription of the natural. I mean, that, that would, there's no way he could have achieved what he was trying to achieve through the encyclical if he'd gone into all of those questions. That's my first point, which is a defense of... Leo Thirteenth against what the article we were mentioning uh, argues, which I mean, some of which is true, but but I, th- it, I don't think it's because he's secretly been he's drunk deep of the Turkish delight of the Enlightenment. I think it's because <laughs> he um, uh, it's because he he's trying to convince a certain group of people, and to some extent he has to at least use language that's comprehensible to them and not bring in a load of of ancillary arguments, which are only going to be interesting to a small group of Dominicans and and Jesuits. <laughs> Uh, and um, a small other, group of Dominicans and an even smaller group of Jesuits. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, and then then the other um, the other point is that um, I, I don't. Th- I think what you're saying, whatever its intrinsic merits, what you just said there, Joel, whatever its intrinsic merits are, um, uh, is is clearly rejecting what Leo XIII says in Rerum Novarum, where he says, there is no need to bring in the state, man precedes the state and possesses prior to the formation of any state, the right of providing for the substance. But I think that's right in a sense, uh, because if you read Aristotle, um, and I think actually Smith echoes Aristotle here, uh, but if you read Aristotle, uh, his scheme that Thomas takes and that I think Leo adopts as well is you know, first you have families and uh, they're necessary because that's how mankind reproduces itself. But then the families grow and you start to have villages, which start as, you know, associations, family associations, but they're many households. And that's necessary to live, uh, to, to provide the means of life better. Uh, but then finally, to live virtuously, you have to have a society that's doing something more than just providing for the necessities. And that's when you get the city. Um, So in a sense, the family and the family's use of uh, material goods is prior. It comes before. And if the family isn't prior in the sense that it withers away, if it persists, the city, in other words, doesn't replace families, but uh, exists alongside of them, then the family's right to property and to existence would uh, would uh, not go away either. They would just not be absolute in the sense that the state could never, uh, you know, uh, come in and, and do things uh, within the sphere of the family, which I think Leo doesn't deny. I don't think Leo means to deny something like, oh, if you had a, a alcoholic father who was abusing his kids, can the state come and say, no, these kids have to be wards of the state now because we're worried that they might get killed. I don't think Leo is saying, no, that you can't ever do that. The the rights of the family are uh, sacred and inviolable in that sense. But uh, I think what that's he means is that they, they I wanna, don't I wanna, think... 
Sorry. Go away. Yeah, I want to sort of agree with you, Sekundum Quid. But before I do that, um, I want to go back to 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 clarify a point that we brought up before, uh, namely about society and the state. I think um, the way you framed the question, Chris, it sounded like we were making a distinction between civil society and the state. And I don't think there is any such distinction. And I don't think Ellen meant uh, that either. That, that is, you have, there are different societies. There's civil society, which is the state. There's the church, which is a necessary society. There's the family, which is a necessary society. There are various um, other societies that are not um, necessary in the sense of being obligatory under natural law, but that are good for human beings to engage in. Um, but to say that uh, man and the family are are prior to the state means to, to say that this 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 society, namely the family, is in one order, namely in the order of material causality, prior to this other society, which is the state. Um, and now to, to Joel's point, I think this is right, and in. In Aristotle, it's, um, and, and Charles de Koenig has a very good uh, paper on this, as does this friend Jacques de Mondeon, or however you pronounce that. We were <laughs> disagreeing about this before the podcast started. Uh, that the state depends on the family um, because the family gives a kind of beginning in the education of virtue to its members, to the children, particularly, which enables them to take part in civic life. And there's a certain, if the state were to usurp the role of the family, it would, as it were, saw off the branch that it's sitting on, because it would prevent people from uh, getting the kind of beginnings and virtue that are necessary in order for them to uh, really participate in a higher common good. Man needs to be trained in the smaller society, um, in which he can uh, develop certain virtues before he can um, engage in a higher society well. And part of that training will require um, uh, will require a certain kind of dominion over things and uh, uh, the sort of economic activities that are ordered to bodily subsistence are also a kind of training that helps men then to engage in the wider society. Um, so in, in, in ancient Athens, you had to be a, a property owner to take part in political life, basically. And the idea of this was uh, that you need a certain independence um, in order to be able to enter the public sphere and act uh, act politically in a responsible way without being, um, you know, without, if, if you don't, if you didn't have that independence, then you would, the, the great temptation would be to use the political sphere for your private advantage. That is, you'd just be pocketing bribes all the time and you wouldn't really oh. be caring about the public good of the city. 
doesn't this uh, this this sort of makes the argument for the socialist, right? Uh, and that is that the the family or the uh, the village, as it were, uh, are even if they're materially first, uh, they're so imperfect that what they really need is the state to uh, actually help them be ordered to their end, uh, because they're never going to get there uh, if if we just leave them alone, right? I, I don't think that's a, that's not a socialist point to say that the state is necessary for the family to really achieve its end. Uh, I, I, I don't take that as a socialist point. The socialist point for me would be more that uh, either the complete abolition of families is what is aimed at, or uh, family can't uh, is not the proper sphere for property and family is completely posterior to the state. Well, part of this is it has to do with the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, the before the Industrial Revolution, you had most um, economic production took place in the household, either in subsistence farms or in the towns, in the the houses of the master craftsmen who were producing stuff, and they had you know their apprentices and journeymen who were working for them. But basically, they were household. Uh, producers. But with the Industrial Revolution, what you get is a kind of social production of goods, which it turns out is enormously more efficient than domestic production. Um, because for all the reasons that Adam Smith describes and so on, you have the, the um, division of labor and, and all this stuff. And then you also get uh, machines and, and all the rest of it. And so now, de facto, the family isn't the place of economic production. What it, the, the place of economic production is these large um, economic societies, these artistic societies, as, as the scholastics would call them, that is societies that are ordered to production um, rather than to virtue. Um, so they're not prudential societies, but artistic societies. And now the question comes, how do we deal with this? What What is the solution? And the socialist says, these powerful um, economic societies that are, are much bigger than a household or a family. Um, we have to, uh, we have to regulate them and bring them under the authority of the state. Um, so that the way that the, so that the, the production serves the common good of the people and not the private good of the capitalists. So I, I, I think, and, and this is to be slightly un to allied a, a real distinction between socialism and Marxism. Uh, but I, I think Marx says something, uh, if I can find the quote, that's that's very telling about both capitalists and socialists because people always uh, oppose them and rightly so. But in this respect, they are uh, identical. And this is from uh, an essay, The Person and the Economic Society by Jacques de Montlion, but he's quoting Marx here. Uh, and he points out, uh, so, so the context is he's talking about how uh, there's natural acquisitiveness that is has some sort of term, and then there's another kind of acquisitiveness that's uh, you know unbounded. And so here, Marx says in his History of Economic Doctrines, he says Ricardo, rightly for his time, regards the capitalist mode of production as the most advantageous for production in general, as the most advantageous for the creation of wealth. He wants production for the sake of production, and this with good reason, to assert, as sentimental opponents of Ricardo's did, that production as such is not the object, is to forget that production for its own sake 
means nothing but the development of human productive forces. In other words, the development of the wealth of human nature as an end in itself. To oppose to this end the welfare of the individual, as Sismondi does, is to assert that the development of the species must be retarded in order to safeguard the welfare of the individual, so that, for instance, no war may be waged, since at all events some individuals perish in it. Um, and he goes on in the same uh, the same uh, vein. The whole the whole thing is worth reading. Uh, and and Marx also says elsewhere, true riches is the full productive power of all the individuals. So what Marx is doing there is, in a way, deeply agreeing with the capitalists. And I think most socialists do, too. They both make productivity for its own sake, the, the goal of society. Yeah, this is not the kind of socialism I'm defending. I'm defending the CW stand, <laughs> brand of socialism, which is a very esoteric kind of socialism, which goes back to, to Scott but I don't Nichols, think uh, can get uh, re, re, reinterpretation of Marx as an Aristotelian. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. So I think that's a bad reinterpretation of Marx. I don't think Marx uh, bears the weight of that reinterpretation. And I'm also... Uh, I, I wonder, do the socialists really ever get away from making uh, production their end? Well, I'm not sure that criticism really hits Parter Edmund because um, they could. Parter Edmund socialism could do that. Right. Um, uh, but I, I think in <laughs> in in regard to um, uh, in regard to the critique of Leo the Thirteenth. You'd have to, and uh, your earlier point, Joel, um, uh, you're conceding that um, that if this temporal power attempts to seize, that there is an essential proper right to uh, own the means of its own subsistence or something equivalent, i.e. like a just wage or whatever, um, vested in the family, and that right. if the state attempts to confiscate that, it's sawing off the branch on which it sits. Um, and, and, and so in that sense, the, the family precedes the state and the state exceed, acts ultra vires if it tries to seize that kind of property. I don't think that's quite the same as the case of the, of the alcoholic father beating up his kids. I think that's much more uh, to do with um, this family dissolving itself by acting contrary to its own essential constitution. Well, well right. What, what I mean is something like in extraordinary times, like World War II, the Defense Production Act, uh, or, or whatever it's called, was used to basically coerce businesses. They, they were compensated, but they had no choice. You are now going to be producing, like I, I think a, a actual case was a lipstick company that made you know, <laughs> little lipstick things, started making shells. Because it was the same shape. And in fact, there was a law that required that they make the shell, the lipstick in a certain size mm -hmm. so that they could easily be changed into making 50 caliber ammunition shells. Uh, <laughs> That sort of thing obviously isn't good all the time, but in extraordinary circumstances, it might happen. In the same way, like, it's not natural to cut off your hand. That's bad. However, if your hand had gangrene, yeah. the extraordinary circumstances might say, yeah, you have to cut it off. Likewise, uh, a family ought to make its own, uh, you know, ought to be able to provide for the necessities of life because that's what the family is. That's the sort of society it is, as well as the beginnings of the education and virtue. Uh, so there may be cases where the state has to come in, for instance, uh, 
if the wife, uh, the husband dies, uh, and there's you know a wife with ten kids, maybe the state comes in and starts giving them a subsidy. Subsidy that's not like shouldn't be the norm necessarily, but uh, that sort of and I would say that's a good thing. But that sort of situation isn't the norm. But it's the sort of way in which the state can come in without saying, just as you know, a healthy man shouldn't cut off his hand. Uh, you know, a healthy state and a healthy family shouldn't interfere with their uh, the, the family's right to produce its own substance. But the, 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 that may or may not be a good thing. Um, it may have perverse effects, but it may or may not be a good thing. But it, it's um, it's not quite the same as taking the family farm away. Do you see? I mean, right. you're talking about about providing a subsidy. As opposed to, because I mean, ultimately, the sort of the the, the idea that, that that the means of subsistence themselves, concretely possessed by the family, simply cannot be taken away by the temporal power. It simply of itself doesn't have the authority to do that. Um, that's the 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 obvious illustration of the opposite is the Ukrainian terror famine in the right. 1930s, where the state decided that for the common good of the Soviet Union, it would be really good if millions of Ukrainians starved and they just took uh, all their food away. And the, well, the well here's an example of what I'm talking about. In Hawaii, uh, the property was dominated after the uh, kingdom had been conquered by the United States. The property was dominated by a handful of families, a handful of colonists who'd, who'd come over and they just owned everything. And you had to rent from them. You had to do everything from them. And at a certain point, laws were passed basically breaking up these uh, you know, quasi-monopolies. And the Supreme Court said, yes, that's okay because the situation needs to change. Uh, I'm vastly simplifying and possibly misremembering. But let's say for the sake of argument that that's a, a rough description of what happened. I would say that that's at least arguably okay. In principle, I wouldn't have a problem with that, uh, yeah, and because fact, you know the vast majority of people are, are 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 were barred from having any sort of security and were were dependents on these oligarchs. Yeah, in fact, in in Popularum Progressio, Saint Paul VI um, says this in in paragraph twenty four. If certain landed estates impede the general prosperity because they're extensive, unused, or poorly used, or because they bring hardship to peoples or are detrimental to the interests of the country, the common good sometimes demands their expropriation. Right. And in my read of Leo is that that's not contrary to him saying that private property is inviolable and, uh, you know, sacred and all that, because... Uh, Yes, as a general matter, you shouldn't come in and take people's family farm. But what if the family farm is like the entire country? And right, but we you know, are we are that's equivocating on family farm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so all I'm saying is all I'm saying that Leo is saying is that you can't take away if if as it happens, um, the Smiths own uh, the means of their own subsistence, uh, which they realise through their own labour. And use and the state can't say it would be much better for you if you just received an Amazon prepaid um, uh, a gift card um, <laughs> every week from the government, and that's you're going to live in a pod. You're going to eat bugs, and you're going to love it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, but so let me, let me, let me right? turn because to the, the problem of the industrial revolution because it seems to me that you have. Um, you basically, you're faced with uh, 
with with four options. One, because the, the result of the Industrial Revolution is that most people, in fact, do not own the means of their own subsistence. In, in Austria, only 3% of the population are farmers. And of those 3%, not all of them are working family farms. So it's, it's a tiny minority of the population that, in fact, owns a family farm and is, is growing their own subsistence and so on. Um, so what do you do? You have this situation. It seems to me there are four options. The one option is sort of the, the inertia capitalist option. We just keep on going as everything is. Uh, and, but if you think that's unjust, then there's the three options that you might argue are, are, um, are compatible with Catholic social teaching. The first would be the distributist option, which is we try to ratchet back the industrial revolution, go back to pre-industrial times. Uh, the, the, then there's the corporatist uh, option, which would be we, we try to um, make corporations, that is economic societies, uh, that have representatives of both workers and employers um, that are public law corporations and where everyone who's involved in a certain industry is obliged to be part of these public law corporations. And they will then negotiate wages and, and stuff like this. And the, the last option would be the socialist option, which is to say the only way we're going to break free from capitalism is by a full-on attack. That's why we have to use the name socialist so they know we're, we're out for their blood. And, uh, <laughs> right? And uh, we uh, expropriate the expropriators, um, put them all to death, and, uh, <laughs> and we, we nationalize all the industries. Where we make them owned by their workers. I don't see why you can't instead. I mean, I'm bracketing for, a, 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 I admit the question of, of of countermeasures by the existing owners of capital who may, whose concentrations of ownership or whose current conduct may be prejudicial to the common good in a serious way so that the state has to take action. I admit that they're going to take countermeasures and that you need to have some uh, morally legitimate plan in place for how you deal with those countermeasures. Um, uh, but I don't think socialism is one of those morally legitimate plans. But the but I don't see why you have to have either. Uh, I'm sure a distributist uh, spokesperson would object to your your sort of Luddite description of distributism. But um, uh, but the but I don't see why the only alternative is corporatism. I don't see why you can't um, why you can't just say that um, uh, joint stock companies will pay a significantly higher rate of taxation than uh, employee-owned enterprises. Um, in order to, so yes, you can't have people. It wouldn't work realistically in the 21st century to have um, everybody be subsistence farmers, and it would in fact require quasi-socialistic measures in order to try and bring that about, which would then just lead to a kind of massive famine. Um, uh, so, um, but but I don't see why you can't say that uh, cooperatively owned producer cooperatives. Uh, cooperatively owned enterprises will pay massively less tax because they are they are much more we don't have to worry about whether they're giving their weight their workers a just wage because they can act in accordance with their own interests because they own the company and they're not going to outsource the labor force because they are the labor force 
therefore they 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 massively reduce the difficulties faced by the state in trying to prevent uh, a conflict between um, large-scale private ownership and the common good. Um, so we're going to give them, because they reduce the burdens on the state, we're going to cause them to pay massively lower rates of taxation. And then you don't have to have heavy-handed uh, state intervention and massive public law corporations. Um, and you don't have to claim a socialistic right of prior ownership over the entire um, uh, economy in order to... Um, take draconian countermeasures against uh, capitalist oligarchs, you can just slowly detoxify the structures of ownership in your society by shrinking the state, in fact, by reducing the amount of um, of money that it takes from private initiative in, in those forms of economic organisation which cause fewer pathologies. Well, at this point, we had an unfortunate thing happen here, and that is that Potter Edmund had to run off for mass. So, Joel, I'm wondering if you can uh, continue the conversation a little bit by telling us what is the inherent challenge to the duality, the two poles of, uh, on the one hand, capitalism, or on the other hand, socialism. Could you tell us some more about what you're seeing there? Uh, yeah, so the, the, the problem with both capitalism and socialism is that technology has advanced to the point where man's productive capacities are so vast that it's all but impossible. It was always difficult to control wealth, but now it's all but impossible. And it's what, in fact, the actually existing capitalists and the actually existing socialists all aim at, just endless productivity. And Marx is explicit about it. Marx is supposedly, supposedly a critic of capitalism. Yeah, exactly. But Marx yeah. is a materialist in this sense. He thinks man's nature is fulfilled by unleashing his productive forces. So this is a, this is a problem. Potter I don't know Edmunds. a great answer. It doesn't deal with Potter Edmund's pretend socialist point, which is that, yeah, okay, Marx is just a capitalist who thinks that things could be organized more efficiently by one massive state-owned capitalist monopoly. Yes, that's what he's doing. Um Although he's then got this idea that, that everyone's going to become morally perfect and wander around copulating at random and producing masterpieces. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, but, the, um, but it doesn't deal with the claim that, oh, but if only you know, Catholic socialists took control of Marx's system, they would order the, the massive cap uh, state-owned uh, capitalist monopoly towards um, uh, the attainment of virtue and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. I well, mean, you know, I, I just That's don't really see how you're going <laughs> to monopolize things even further. And uh, uh, I mean, in theory, yeah, that, that theory would say you've now we've now got uh, Strand's definition as modified by Potter Edmund to include aiming at the common good to the point where I'm not sure it actually describes socialism only. I, I just don't think it actually only describes socialism. I think it describes all sorts of things. But if the theory is that we're going to destroy families' ability to have anything, uh, uh, you know, wage labor or anything else, and then therefore by this great conglomeration of power in the state and uh, centralization of wealth, we're going to limit wealth's uh, uh, power, uh, I think that that is a somewhat naive theory 
and I think corporatism is is better precisely because it has more subsidiarity built into it. Yeah, but what is the subsidiarity thing, right? Because it seems to me like uh, that's sort of invented as an afterthought to sort of say, oh, we're not that sort of socialist, right? Um, it's like if you're going to affirm the universal destination of goods and if you're going to affirm the the right in theory of the state to actually you know, determine whether that, that hand of Joel's is gangrenous or not, it, it doesn't matter if Joel says the hand is not gangrenous, gangrenous <laughs> the state can come in and just lop it off right and they can say well but for the common good right <laughs> well, well there's no such thing there's no such thing as so so aristotle and I, I think the classical tradition is very aware of the fact that virtuous states are quite rare virtuous states are quite rare indeed most states are mixed in terms of being they're not purely good they're not purely bad they're you know got some good points they've got some bad points even soviet russia had traffic laws that i assume were more or less good right you know uh, or, or, or some laws, you know, that, that, that kept some sort of basic order, even though probably most of the system was evil and wicked. Uh, it wasn't, you know, entirely every single thing about it. Um, and if that's the case, like it's no objection to say, oh, but the state could misuse its power in theory. Well, that could always happen. The objection would be you set up a system where, uh, abuse seems inevitable, at least from actual practice. Maybe Potter Edmonds' very specific definition of socialism doesn't fall under the Pleonexia uh, condemnation, but it certainly seems that Marx does, and it certainly seems that capitalist uh, systems, uh, Ricardo and, and Smith and all, would. Well, I think you've got to bear in mind this thing about the state not naturally being only being distinct from the spiritual power because of the fall is really important because the state the distinction of the state from the spiritual power is a check and balance introduced as a result of human sin so i, so I think even, even if without you the, go on I think, well, sorry sorry i'm cutting you off but i think this is actually a a, a disagreement amongst integralists and so this kind of goes beyond the socialism point but uh I think even without the fall, you still have at least some sort of distinction between man's natural capacity and his supernatural destination. There's definitely a distinction. So, so I mean, there would be formally distinct temporal powers, spiritual powers, and the family would remain distinct formally, but they'd be materially identical. Right, so right, right. I'm, and that right. I would agree. That I would yeah. agree. So, and, so, and in fact, that will be, uh, I mean, I question how much the family persists, but in the heavenly city, yeah, uh, there will not be a pope and an emperor. There will be, be Christ, Christ the King. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Melchizedek. Uh, right, right. So yeah. eventually, it, it it will come back together, uh, and that's you know one of the the importance of the doctrine of of Christ the King. But I think if they're if they're formerly uh, distinct, then you can say that there is a natural ordination of families towards the state. Towards, yeah, sure, know, but, but as happiness. you said, not such as to destroy its essential properties. Right, right. And, it's still, and one it still of which is the necessary. right to own the means of its own production or something equivalent. 
Right. So right. Th this makes an interesting question uh, with regard to socialism, right? Uh, because um, in in the common uh, parlance of today, socialism isn't the socialism that we've been talking about, right? Um, it's it's actually probably a far more nefarious thing. But we'll we'll leave that for another day. Um, the question that I have, because it seems like this sort of uh, socialism uh, and even the capitalism we were speaking of um, implies an integral relation to politics rather than a, a separation. Um, right. And um, my question is, at what point does uh, the economic um, predilection of the state um, impact its legitimacy? Like, at what point could we say uh, that if, um, you know, in the previous example, the state decides that Joel's hand is gangrenous when it's not, uh, and they decide to cut off the means of, of production from that family, uh, at what point can we say, uh, yeah, this is, this is no longer a legitimate uh, government? So I'll interject real quickly. I think Alan probably has, has more to say on this, that, you know, Thomas has a whole theory of what you do under an unjust government. Uh, and it distresses people if they pay attention to him. But the conditions for actually rebelling are pretty uh, narrow. And Thomas actually, for the most part, seems to say, listen, this is being given to you either to make you holier or as a punishment for your sinful nature. And you need to accept it for the most part unless you have conditions like, you know, you might actually have success. The law is, you know, really unjust and, you know. Uh, Are you talking about the day regno, the discussion of the day regno? Uh, That's I'm what I was thinking of. Yeah. I think it might be in the day regno, but I think he might actually bring it up elsewhere as well. But I, I think the day regno is, there's no, it's not like he's changed his mind between the, the, the places. And uh, it's been so long since I read it, but, uh, the point being, just because you have an unjust state doesn't mean you can rebel. You, you, yeah, at sure. the very least, you have to actually, it has to be unjust enough and you have to actually be able to uh, successfully, uh, you know, have, have a chance of success. Also, just because the law is unjust doesn't mean you shouldn't obey it. You have to make sure that there's not going to be scandal, that there's not going to be other ill effects that would out, outweigh uh, the, uh, sort of, co uh, you know, uh, acid effect of disobeying the law. So, yeah, and, so an Alan who, who's a good Englishman and therefore a gun owner, uh, living in somewhere <laughs> in the Rocky mountains. Um, well, my wife uh, has an AK 47 and I own all of her property. So I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. See, so, so, so when the government shows up and says, uh, right, uh, you lot, uh, you need to clear out because your productivity is hurting the state. Uh, you know, uh, and Alan pulls out his, his wife's and therefore his own AK 47, uh, and says, uh, uh, you will not take this means of production except from my cold, dead hands in a, in a great uh, English accent doing an American accent. Um, at, at what point uh, is is he sort of breaking the the conditions for just war, right? He's got no chance of winning here. Right. He should yeah, just put down the AK-47 and, and right. hand over all of his other unregistered guns to the state, right? Right, but I mean, right. That, that's I, I think the Thomistic teaching is just, uh, sorry, uh, sorry. Uh, uh, the domestic teaching is very much that you have to suffer for the most part. 
but I think that's not because in in the abstract that's just because you're going to lose right. and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's probably better to but I mean but we had this discussion in a Byzantine history class I did at the ICI about whether Constantine the 11th should have accepted Mehmed II's offer to let him become Ottoman governor of the Peloponnese um, and take all of the people of Constantinople there rather than uh, resist, lose and have them all raped, massacred and other horrible things happen to them by uh, the friend, our friends, the sons of Ishmael. Um, and, um, and he, uh, and, and uh, it's really funny actually, uh, Vitali who was a Ukrainian uh, seminarian, now priest, he said that, yeah, probably um, Constantine should have given in and handed over Constantinople to Mehmed. And um, Rachel, who is a, 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 a Melkite from Georgia, that is non-Caucasian Georgia in the United States, um, uh, um, she she lost it and accused Vitaly of being a, a, a pierogi-eating surrender monkey. And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, um, it was an amazing argument. And um, uh, But I mean, uh, the, once we kind of calmed everybody down, it seemed that, that Rachel was, I thought, was essentially in the right in that although it was doomed from... Vitaly was a pierogi eating... Uh... Well, no, no, I don't mean about that. But, uh, but the, um, although it was doomed, uh, it'd be, it's better that, that, that um, Constantine XI and his make them pay so that they realize the cost of doing it to Vienna or, or Buddha or whatever. You see what I mean, that if everybody just surrenders, then in the end, uh, we'd all be speaking Turkish now. Right. Although, although there is a big difference between a rightful king and government saying, we're going to make a stand against the foreign enemy and a private citizen saying, you know what, uh, Stalin is evil and I'm going to just go off and resist him all on my own uh, or, or whatever. But that is a prudential judgment. I mean, in a certain sense, he has a, he has a right which can then be rebutted by the fact that it's going to actually lead to worse things for his family or that it won't do any good or no one will hear about his resistance or it won't, it won't, it will embolden rather than chasten the tyrant or whatever. Right. I mean, all those, uh, those considerations have to be worked out as to whether or not he should, in the end, he has, he's morally free to, to actually exercise the right in principle to resist this illegitimate confiscation of his father. Um, or whatever it well, is. Well, I mean, and, and, and that's, I, I think that's right. It's been so long since I read this passage uh, with, you know, an eye to this sort of discussion, but, uh, you know, prudence is queen. So there's all sorts of things that like, in principle, you could do, should be absolutely wrong for you to do because you'd be uh, violating the virtue of uh, prudence. Yeah. 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 A hard part of the whole conversation, right, is um, you can't have a science of particulars, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking on the level of principle and then then how it applies in this or that historical instance or, or even in this, you know, future contingent moment uh, that, that we were talking about with Alan's own uh, familial uh, defense. Um, it seems like uh, that, uh, you know, we, we're going to do the best we can do. And um, what what we still haven't arrived in this conversation is regarding um, whether whether socialism, you know, in, in the Potter Edmund sort of delineated uh, manner actually is um, a legitimate way of living out Catholic social teaching. No, I, I think it's absolutely not, because uh, what it does is takes away the fact that, yes, the family is ordered to the state, but it says that the... Uh, 
economic activity is going to be entirely controlled by the state in terms of the means of production. And I think that's too far because that's uh, instead of taking the family as something that's ordered to, but necessary, like an, or, uh, you know, the body has organs that are ordered to ultimately contemplation and happiness, but they're necessary. You don't just, you know, rip out your lungs because they're not your soul. Uh, the same way the family is necessary to a state, so a state that sets out to root out families entirely or to take away things that are proper to the family seems to me is entirely wrong. And I, I think that's ultimately the error, that economic activity is, uh, at least on some level, uh, proper to the family. And again, that's, that's I mean, I'm not very, you know, I'm very pessimistic because I think part of the problem is that uh, technology has made productive forces so powerful that while oligarchy was almost always a danger, now it's a huge danger that seems almost inevitable. Alan, my thoughts. Oh, well, it's interesting um, that in um, 16th century or earlier, you do have something pretty similar to this in the sense that you know, the Duke of this and the Earl of that or whatever, they're massive landowners. Um, they own the productive capacity of the civil commonwealth. They, um, uh, but, they, it, but they do so in a sort of semi-licensed um, way from the crown. And if they get above themselves, they become over mighty subjects. Then all that stuff can be taken from them. But uh, Piers Plowman, is not an overmighty subject. He's not a danger. The honest yeoman, if you say, I mean, so, so from the Leonine perspective, yeah, sure, the Earl of Warwick keeps switching the monarch because uh, he feels like it because he's just such a massive landowner. So curtains for him. Um, but uh, if you try and take, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the the humble Swain's, um, whatever, I can't remember what Swain actually is. It's probably some technical term. Maybe you try and take away... Um, somebody's tiny little uh, land holding then you then the king has, has has reached beyond his legitimate scope and um and sawn off the branch on which he sits taken away his prize you lamb uh yeah i think that's right well uh gents uh, this has been quite a an episode, uh, both from the perspective of technical issues and... Um, Hi, Raymond, I just want to say thank you so much. And it has been such an honor to serve as the uh, humble host for the uh, Josiah's podcast. I'll probably be taking a bit of a leave of absence. And Chris is going to be ably and more than ably filling my shoes and then some. Joel, I'm really grateful for uh, for your friendship and your time and looking forward to uh, that continuing, even if it's not regularly on the podcast. Uh, and and Alan, as always, um, uh, we, you know, we could sit here and talk for hours. Um, so we'll uh, we'll do a, a try to regroup and put together a good plan of getting back to a more regular podcast publication uh, schedule. And um, we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you all on the, the Twitterverse or, or other other places be sure to go check out the josias website and and drop us some comments on some things you'd like to hear us talk about uh, until then uh, god bless you all